La pendule fait tic-tac, tic-tic. Les oiseaux du lac, pic-pac, pic-pic. Glou, 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 font tous les dindons. Et la jolie cloche, ding-ding-dong. Mais boum, quand notre. Hi, thank you for joining us. Véronique Landieu and Mike Pierce to our seventh episode of French Rugby Connection. I won't speak so much today because I just had a very, very good conversation with somebody who chats even more than me. Can you believe well, no, that? No, I can't believe that. Who could it be? It's the very famous, one of the best uh, rugby player number 10, um, Andrew, Andrew Metters. Andrew Mertz, wow. That's a, that's, a, that's a good shout. Yeah, I remember Mertz in the um, 1995 World Cup final um, against South Africa, which which the Springboks won. Very, very good player. Very good player indeed. Superb place kicker, drop goal expert. Yeah, that's that's a real coup. How did you get hold of him? Oh, through my French rugby connections. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but anyway, but let's talk about um, about the European Cup. As I mentioned to you, um, Andrew, you know, was lucky to uh, to play it with. Um, with Toulon, yeah. with Toulon and, and Racing, so obviously... Wow, so he's got, a, he's got a happy weekend then with uh, the Challenge Cup final Friday between Toulon and Bristol. Um, exactly. Yeah. So can you tell us, uh, me, can, can you tell us more about uh, the, the, this uh, Europe, very European uh, weekend? Oh, so, this is a culmination. I mean, when you think this should have happened in April or May, it's, it's been a long time coming. But uh, also, the, the, I say the Challenge Cup finals on Friday night between Toulouse and Bristol. It's in Aix, en Provence. They're allowing a 1,000 spectators in. And apparently, the tickets were sold out online within half an hour of it opening. So I think we can safely assume it's going to be packed full of Toulon supporters. <laughs> But it, it, now you know you know how I love my interesting stats because I've got such a sad life. Now, if Toulon win this trophy, they'll be the eighth French club to win it, following Bourgoin, Clermont, Colomiers, Po, Biarritz, Montpellier, and Stade Francais. So, eight clubs possibly uh, will have won won the trophy by. Friday night, and also Toulon could become the first French club to win both the Champions Cup and the Challenge Cup. So, you know, the stats, when it comes to finals, the stats just flowing, aren't they? So, refresh my memory, how many times has Toulon won the the Champions Cup? Oh, gosh, I don't need to, I haven't prepared for that one. It's quite a few, isn't it? I, I've got a feeling... Uh, it's three or four, isn't it? I know they won three in a row. Yes, yes. Because I think the the high. I mean, the Statue Lausanne is the one who's got three yeah, stars. Yeah, yeah. It's probably three jersey. then, perhaps two. Long. I don't think they've got as many as. Uh, but I'm sure our our listeners will will tweet in and let us know. But yeah, because they had those three years with Wilkinson, didn't they? And all the Galacticos there, and you know they were pretty much untouchable, weren't they? So, yeah, so as I say, Toulon, Toulon, um, Toulon and Bristol have met twice in the Challenge Cup so far. Bristol have won both games. Bristol won 39-11 in 2008, and they won 37-19 in Toulon in 2009. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty impressive, impressive result at the start of Mayol. It is. And Parise, Sergio Parise. Um, in Toulon colours this season. Uh, this will be his fourth final 
if he's selected, which I'm pretty sure he will. He captained Stade Francais to victory in 2011, 2013 and 2017. Uh-huh. So it's going to be a fascinating contest uh, Friday night in Aix. And um, I don't know, who do you think is going to win? Well, it's going to be a tight one. It would be very much, you know, experience versus... Uh, <laughs> versus uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, it's a tough uh, one to call, isn't it? Because you think Bristol yes. are a really good sign. You know, I think if it was in in Bristol or in in the UK, you'd fancy Bristol, wouldn't you? But but Toulon, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not you know it's not too far away from them, is it? It's only a short train ride up up to Aix, just up from Marseille. That's right. So, that's right. But let's not forget they they can only allow uh, one thousand. Yeah. Uh, supporter, so it's not that much. Yeah, but you know how uh, you are noisy too. On a thousand <laughs> of them is probably equivalent to about twenty thousand Harlequin supporters. <laughs> exactly, they have to a pilou pilou as yeah. well, you know, yeah. on, on stage. So yeah, I, I'm guessing it's going to be tight. I I would like to see. I I, I like you know what Bristol has been has been doing, yeah. you know, in terms of. Uh, uh, going up, you know, the championship in the, in the UK and uh, yeah, they play a nice brand of rugby as well, don't they? Yeah, so so we'll see. I said it's very very tough. I can't decide. I need to remain impartial because I'm French. Yeah. So did, did, did you see Bristol against Wasps last week in the Gallagher semi final? Yes. I mean, Wasps. Yes. Absolutely hammered them, didn't they? Yeah. I was so yes, surprised because... at that. Yeah, because I think they kept their best player for for this time, you know. So that that's so the same thing happened with uh, with uh, Racing. So Racing is playing Exeter, uh, Exeter. Yes. That, so what's the odds for that? that? What that's do you think? in Bristol. Oh, I fancy Exeter. I mean, Exeter are so good at grinding out victories. They're so good defensively. I mean, Racing are very good. You know, brilliant attacking side. But um, two teams have never met before, actually, actually in Europe. And um, another interesting Mike Pierce stat, players from 11 different countries could feature in Saturday's game. So it's a real, real um, united colours of rugby, isn't it? Mm, and Racing, Racing this in Europe have scored seven tries from kick returns and Exeter scored seven tries from tapped penalties. So um, take out of that what you will. But, you know, Racing plays such an exciting attacking brand of rugby don't they and if, if there's one person that can unlock a defense it's finn russell so oh yes so it's going to be yeah i mean two fascinating games i i, I can't wait and you know they kept you know the the players you know the usual, the usual suspects you know uh they they gave them a week off last yeah. week so uh you have uh, uh russell katawa leroux um you know, we, we didn't yeah. play last last week. You know, so just ready to to be to play to play for this week. And you know, they 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 were very strict. You know, because of the yeah, COVID nineteen sure. restriction as well. And they 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 played. I mean, they train in a hotel somewhere somewhere in France. Yeah. You know, just to to ensure there would be no uh, no inf- no further. Yeah, probably in probably in some <laughs> campanile somewhere off the A one. Not quite, but, not quite. I won't say anything. I hey, I tell you what. I tell you what's great to see Finn Russell back in the Scotland squad because, um, as as our listeners probably know, he had a bit of a fallout with Scotland coach Greg Townsend last season. But looks like they've kissed and made up. So, um, so yeah. So he'll be. I'm sure he'll be thrilled. And you know, he's such a confidence player. I, I think we can expect a big performance from him. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wasn't aware of those handbags, so thank you for letting me know. <laughs> so it's like a hockey, okay, or hello, hello, <laughs> French rugby connection. But okay, but let's, um, as I said to you, know, as, um, I had the, the great opportunity to speak with uh, one of the rugby legends, you know, of this world, Andrew Meta. So let's listen what he had to say about you know his experience with the All Blacks, what he thinks about French rugby right now, and uh, uh, how, uh, what needs to be done in order to make uh, French rugby e even better as it is. Hi, so today I'm delighted to speak with a rugby legend, Andrew Mertens, who played for... Canterbury, Crusaders, and of course, of course, you know, the All Blacks. And then went to play for, for France. Um, so, Andrew, have you thought about writing your biography? Because you've been, you've had such a, a busy, a busy life, rugby life. Because in the UK, you know, every week there seems to be a new book coming out. There is one, I think that was released a few weeks ago from Joe Marler, Dylan Hartley. Hi, uh, Veronique. No, uh, look, I haven't really considered it. I think um, I lived through a period where a lot of my contemporary players were writing books, so all the stories got done, all the stories about playing golf on tour and who stole <laughs> whose underpants, you know. It, so all those stories got done, and I've never felt that I had a story that's yet finished and that's worth telling. Um, I was very lucky in my rugby career. You know, I played across New Zealand, Uh, England, France, and Italy, and across all the different levels of rugby, um, and and it was a great experience. And I've moved into my career after rugby as well, but I still don't feel my story is finished. So you know, I don't presume that my story is interesting enough. Um, you know, and maybe it doesn't pay enough money at the moment. You know, maybe I have to wait until I you know do something like Donald Trump become president of the United States, and then I can write a book. <laughs> who knows who knows but i have to say you are too modest andrew because let's not forget that you were one of the all-time points scorer for the all black uh with how many points was it refresh my memory well i look i do know because it get it gets announced at functions that i go to so it's 900, <laughs> 967 points and You know what? I would have been overjoyed to get three points in Test Rugby. So, you know, to be lucky enough to play as long as I did, um, I was very, very happy. I wasn't someone who was destined to, 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 to play international rugby, so everything for me was a bonus. Um, some of the big moments for me in my career were maybe going past Grant Fox, um, who had 645 points for the All Blacks, I think, And then another hero of mine or someone I um, looked up to a lot, Michael Liner from the Wallabies, had yes. 900, 911 points. Um, and I managed to get past that. But, you know, like I say, everything that I w was lucky enough to do was a bonus. So, you know, to, to, to get that number of points was uh, a dream come true. And, you know, subsequently, of course, people like Dan Carter have gone well past that. And um, I was very, very excited for, for Dan Carter, who was a young player who I played alongside and for him to go smash every record that was possible to, to, to beat was just incredible to see. And, uh, 
every time it seemed that he he, he beat a, an All Black record, my name got thrown in the mix in the in the article as well. So I was very lucky, you know. Dan Carter was very good for my profile. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, nice one. Are you still in touch with uh, Dan Carter, by the way? How is he doing in Japan? No, so yeah, so he's living in Auckland at the moment. Um, I mean, we're not regularly in touch, but every now and then there'll be some messages go back and forth. I caught up with uh, with DC at the Rugby World Cup in Japan last year, which was nice as well. He's still playing his rugby career. And, you know, with guys like that, you know, I was very lucky to play alongside Dan and, say, Richie McCaw and, and guys like that. Um, but they have a long time of retirement ahead of them. So, you know, I know we're always going to catch up at, 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 at times. But uh, Dan's still playing rugby. Richie McCaw has now got a daughter called Charlotte. He's bringing up his, you know, he's building his family. So you go through those periods and, you know, when there's a chance to catch up, it's fantastic. But uh, I think probably, you know, later in life is probably when we'll catch up a lot more. Mm -hmm. The old men's rugby club or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ah, exactly. That's exactly right. Something like that. So back to memory lane, Andrew, um, or Mert. Mert sounds is, is really how people call you. So I'm going to call you Mert. <laughs> yeah, nobody calls nobody calls me Andrew really unless they're telling me off. So um I struggle with it. So <laughs> I don't think I don't think I look like an Andrew. I think I just look like a Mert. I think I look like you know, I think I look like the annoying kid next door who kicks his ball over the fence all the time and has to come and knock on the door and ask for the ball back. You know, that's that's me. I'm just merds to everybody. <laughs> oh, Denis, Denis la menace. Denis, Denis the menace. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, playing rugby, where did it, where and when did it all start? I believe you were uh, brought up in a very small village in the Maori um, area. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so I, I grew up in rural um, rural New Zealand and there were only maybe 20 people in the village that I lived in, um, a lot of farmers in the in the region. And so, you know, I was a, um, a European kid growing up learning Maori um, right through my, my junior years at the local school speaking Maori until I was 11 or 12. And, you know, in those days in the, in the 70s, Mm-hmm. All there was to do was play sport, and all the all the sport that we had, particularly in the winter, you know, was rugby. So um, I just played rugby. So as you do at school, um, New Zealand kids grow up playing rugby, just like Argentinian kids or Brazilian kids grow up um, just playing playing football at school and on the streets after school. So you know that was it. So you know, I grew up in a in a, a little country town and uh, loved playing rugby. Always as um, as a number ten. Yeah, no, actually, well, one season, funnily enough, I played as a flanker, um, and I, I imagine maybe I, I went all right that season. I tackled, but maybe I used up all the tackles of my rugby career in that one season <laughs> when I was seven. So, so that was unfortunate. Um, so I played seven for one season, but I also did like playing a lot at uh, at halfback. Um, so I love playing halfback and and um, also fullback for a long time. And I think the roles of fullback and, and fly half tie in very nicely. So, you know, it was nice to have that experience of, of playing quite a lot of fullback as well. Even when I was playing seniors and started playing uh, in the Canterbury team in the provincial competition in New Zealand, uh, a lot of my games early on were at fullback. So, um, you know, I thought it was very beneficial. 
And when you were growing up, who, who was your uh, rugby hero? Well, when you grow up in Canterbury in New Zealand, you idolise the Canterbury players before the All Blacks. So my heroes were all the Canterbury players. Sure, every now and then we watched and supported the All Blacks, but mostly it was Canterbury. So when I grew up, Canterbury had a great period holding the Ranfurly Shield, which is like the National Challenge Trophy in New Zealand. And so my my heroes were people like Wayne Smith and Robbie Deans and his brother Bruce Deans and Victor Simpson, Warwick Taylor, Andrew McMaster, uh, Craig Green, Dale Atkins, Don Hayes, Jock Hobbs, Albert Anderson, Tony Thorpe, uh, John Buchan, um, uh, Andy Earl, Chris Earl, um, John Ashworth, and um, and Murray Davy. That's naming the entire team and some reserves who who played in the Ranfilly Shield era for Canterbury. <laughs> Yes, and yourself, you have some very uh, strong um, rugby blood because I read that uh, your grandfather was a very talented uh, rugby man as well. Yes, so my grandfather got selected in an All Blacks team um, back in the old days when the All Blacks went on tour and then they also played home games. There were two All Black teams selected. So um, the All Blacks toured South Africa in 1928. Uh, of all the players left in New Zealand, they also chose an all-black team to play New South Wales. And one of um, my grandfather played fullback uh, and he played ahead of, at that time, uh, an all-black hero in George Nepia. So, um, you know, I, I grew up looking at my grandfather's all-black jersey. It was number one because that was the fullback number in those days. Uh, but also my father who played, my father also played for Canterbury went to South Africa and played for Natal, the province over there. He played against the All Blacks. Um, he also played New Zealand juniors, the under-21s and under-23s. So when I was growing up, I, I remember looking in the, you know, their sports bag that my father kept for, for his and his, fa his father's jerseys as well. So um, I was always growing up with the heritage and tradition of rugby. Excellent. Amazing. And how easy or how difficult was it to enter the closed and mystical world of the All Black? Well, it, I mean, it actually happened to me before I realized it was really happening. Um, I think the closer you get to the All Blacks, the, the further away it seems, you know. Um, and so I was just very excited to play for the Canterbury team at the time. And then I got some opportunities that opened up for me. I was very lucky. I mean, you have to you have to be in the position to take those opportunities, but still, to get them, there's a there's a certain amount of luck. So all of a sudden, without even really knowing it or anticipating it, I was in the All Black team in early 1995, and you know, it, it was probably lucky for me that I didn't really have much time to think about it because we were just straight into the games, and it all came as a little bit of a surprise to me. So. You know, like I say, it happened quickly and, and I didn't have a chance to sit back and, and think about it or get nervous about it. So, you know, straight away we're into the games. And I was very lucky at the time when I came into the team. There were some very, very established senior All Blacks there. They were all very helpful. They were all wonderful to me. My captain was Sean Fitzpatrick. Uh, we had a, a wonderfully stable All Black team that I was coming into and they all looked after me. And I had Graham Bishop was my halfback. My midfield was Walter Little and Frank Barnes. 
Um, we had, you know, Zinzanbrook, Michael Jones, Mike Brewer, Craig Dowd, Robin Brookie and Jones, all really established. Olo Brown, Craig Dowd, all really established All Blacks. And so it was, you know, it was relatively easy to come into that team that was operating so so smoothly and was so welcoming for me. Do you remember your very first game with the All Blacks? Yes, I do. We played against Canada. It was our one warm-up mm -hmm. test match before the 95 World Cup. And, um, I mean, like normal, you, you, you get very nervous, uh, I guess, leading up to the kickoff. And once the kickoff, once the whistle blows, then you're into it. And it's great. It's fantastic. But I guess to get rid of my nerves before the game, I tended to joke. I tended to try and joke around a little bit. So when the coach asked me just before the game how I was feeling – I, I told him that I thought I had strained my hamstring running off the field <laughs> from the warm-up. And oh was it a joke? Well, was it yeah. supposed and to be a joke? He looked he looked quite horrified and I yeah. felt really bad, so I had to tell him straight away that I was joking. But uh, Oh dear <laughs> so, It nearly gave him a heart attack, I suppose. Well, I, I, think, I think he started he started thinking, what are we gonna do now? You know, because in those days yeah. you didn't you didn't take a big squad into the test. If somebody pulled their pulled a hamstring or did an injury in the in the warm-up, you were stuffed for the game. So um, I didn't I didn't realize how stupid a joke it was. But anyway, that was my <laughs> that was my way of getting away the pressure of the of the occasion. But once we got into the game, once that once the whistle blew, then you're just playing rugby, you're just playing your sport, you just enjoy it, you're with your teammates, same as, as any other game. And uh, you know, it, it was a very, very fast game. It went past really quickly, it was very intense. But it was it was rugby still, and it was out playing with with your mates or guys who had very quickly become my mates. So, you know, I always say to school teams or under thirteen teams or whatever, there's no difference playing for the All Blacks and playing for your club team or your representative team or, or whatever. It's the same feeling. It's the same passion. It's the same desire to win. It's the same disappointment if you lose. It's the same elation if you win. Um, and so it was It was the same. It was just a lot quicker, but uh, it was a lot of good fun. How many points did you score? Do you recall? Yeah, I do recall because I've been told since. You know, um, <laughs> so I, I, scored 20, I scored 28 points on debut, um, which at the time was a record. Um, I had no idea of any records or anything. I just wanted to go on the field and, and not let my teammates down, not let the country down. Um, so... You know, I got I got some goal kicks. We scored a few tries. I got some conversions, and then I was very very lucky to get a pass from Jeff Wilson, and I was unmarked on the wing, and I managed to scamper over the try line to get a try. And it, again, it wasn't something I was trying to do. It wasn't something I was looking for. I just wanted to come through the game and put my hand up and say I, I did my little bit. But I was very very lucky to get a try. So. I got 28 points on debut. One of the greatest memories I have and one of the traditions of the All Blacks at the time was that when you play your first game, you obviously want to keep your first test jersey. At the same time, there's also the pressure to swap jerseys with the opposition. So what the All Blacks used to do, and I'm not sure if they still do it, but an older player would go and swap his jersey with the opposition and then he would donate that to you. To the new player. So I got to keep my first test jersey and then Frank Bunce was kind enough 
to go and swap his jersey with Gareth Reese, who was the Canadian captain, who remains a very good, very good friend of mine. Um, and so, and he came and gave that jersey to me. So I ended up with my jersey plus the Canadian number twelve jersey. And so, like I say, I, I remain good friends with Gareth Reese. I've still got his jersey from my very first Test match. Oh, what a lovely memory! What a nice gesture as well. So, um, coming up, coming to uh, the World Cup in 1995, how was it to play alongside Jonah Lomu, George Cronfeld, and, and so on? Well, it was very exciting, and, and again, it just happened so quickly that I didn't really have time to sit back and, and think about it. Fortunately, we were, you know, we, we arrived in South Africa. I had gone from not even considering I was close to all black material two months earlier to suddenly I arrive in South Africa and we're on a bus and we've got a police convoy and we're getting raced through the city streets and going to training where thousands of people are watching and it was just incredible really and on top of that I'd been born in South Africa my parents were from New Zealand but they went to South Africa for a, um, a five-year holiday and I was born there so I'd never been back and I had a I felt I had a connection there as well. Um, so all of a sudden, we're at this amazing tournament. We were playing a really good style of rugby. We had a lot of fun. Um, things were going well. And it just all happened so, so quickly. It was, you know, Jonah was becoming or um, had become a, an absolute global superstar. And, you know, he was always a very, very humble, um, quiet guy. But he was taking all the attention of the world and you know that was good for us because the rest of the team could just do our work without the attention and poor Jonah had to, to cop all the attention of the world's press but he was always very unassuming very humble very quiet and we, we did our best to look after him and, and he was a lovely bloke but I'll tell you what you put the ball in his hand he was a menace you know guys would be nervous at training when we would when we were training full-on contact and he got the ball, you know. So I saw some really, really big guys, some big teammates who got, you know, knocked backwards five, six, seven metres by this guy when he decided to 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 put his head down and go for it. So, you know, we knew he was an absolute beast. Um, he was a part of the team, but he was a very, very big part of it. Like I say, he took the pressure away from a lot of a lot of the, the rest of the players by, by all the attention that he that he absorbed. Mm. And uh, from you were very young. You were only like uh, 22 years old in 1995. So, uh, what what is the best memory that you keep from that uh, very first World Cup at such a young age? Um, well, the final the final of that tournament it was obviously a you know very disappointing when we lost. But you know, before the game, we got to meet Nelson Mandela, who you know, clearly is one of the iconic figures of, of human history. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't know what was going on in the background at the time. We were aware of the feeling in South Africa that at the start, at the start, the All Blacks had always relied on the support of the African population and the coloured population in South Africa. And that was the case at the start. As the tournament went on, we, we felt it turning. By the time we got to the final... Um, the whole of South Africa was united behind the Springboks, which was quite incredible given it was such a white-dominated sport. And the reason for that was basically Mandela. So we didn't know mm -hmm. everything that was going on in the background, but we knew, obviously, he was a, an amazing historic figure. Um, 
And so, you know, I got to meet Nelson Mandela before the final, which was extraordinary because I also remember thinking at the time, you know, when you got to shake his hand, I remember thinking, wow, this is an incredible moment, but I'm going to have to enjoy this later in my life because in two minutes' time, I've got to take a kickoff and I've got to make sure that kick goes 10 metres. So that was the mundane Hmm. stuff that was going through my head when I happened to meet Nelson Mandela. <laughs> yeah, back, back, back to work. Very focused on on the day's job in That's hand. Right. So, um, so obviously you spent some time playing in, in New Zealand, and uh, then you decided to move to uh, to Europe and played for Harlequins. So, why why did you move to um, to Harlequins? Um, and which player did you play with? Well, I was I was coming towards the end of my career in New Zealand. I, I certainly knew that my career with the All Blacks, the game had evolved. Um, enough that I felt um, I I wasn't making a contribution at international rugby level. Um, a guy we mentioned before, Dan Carter, was was also um, on the scene by then, and he was quite clearly the future of of that position of my position in All Black Rugby. And I, you know, everything I'd been able to do was a bonus to me. So I had no regrets. I knew that my my, my race was finished in New Zealand and it was time to move on. At the same time, I still had energy to play rugby and I enjoyed playing rugby. And um, I got an opportunity to go to Harlequins, for which I was very thankful because I looked forward to the opportunity to play in a country where I wasn't considering higher selection. You know, in New Zealand, when you're playing and you're in all black, the all black sort of framework, you're, you you know, there's that underlying pressure to perform well all the time just to get back in the All Blacks. Whereas I looked forward to going to England, playing for one team for the whole season with no pressure to get in a national team. And, you know, I looked forward to, as soon as I signed, I looked forward to going to Harlequins. I knew they had a lot of history. Uh, I was looking forward to moving to London, to, to living in the UK. And I had a fantastic experience. We had two uh, wonderful years in London. The first year I played for Harlequins, um, I actually thought that um, I was going to struggle because Will Greenwood was the highest profile player <laughs> at the Harlequins. And he and I, playing against one another, had developed an intense dislike for one another. Even though we'd never met, we'd never really talked, um, I felt like neither of us could stand the other one. So I was a bit nervous getting to Harlequins. But just before I left New Zealand, the Lions were touring New Zealand in 2005. I played my final match ever for Canterbury after um, 13 seasons of playing for Canterbury in the red and black. We played a midweek game and some of the Lions players turned up to watch that game, one of whom was Will Greenwood. And I've suddenly thought that that was quite a big gesture for him to come along and watch a, a future teammate play. So despite the fact we seemed to hate one another on the field, when I got to London, I found Greenwood to be fantastic. We got on very, very well. He had a huge amount of experience, of course, and we were playing in a Harlequins team that had a lot of different different nationalities. We were kind of like a United Nations team. Um, <laughs> we were playing in the second division, which Harlequins had just been relegated to, and we managed to have a, a fantastic season and go up to the first division. And we got to play in, I was very excited to play in out-of-the-way places that weren't premiership 
locations. You know, we played at Truro um, against the Cornish. <laughs> yeah, we played against Truro against the Cornish Pirates. We yes. played against Exeter okay. before Exeter was was big in the first division. We played at Solihull near Birmingham. We played at Sedgley Park near Manchester. We played at Doncaster and Rotherham in Yorkshire. And we had a fantastic, fun season with a good bunch of guys. The following season, we played up in the back up in the Premiership, and I really enjoyed that too. So I had two really, really enjoyable years um, living in London and, and playing for Harlequins. Yes, and you mustn't forget, uh, Mertz, it's a Will Greenwood's birthday soon on the 20th of October. He's going to be uh, 47 years old, so don't forget wow. to send your card. And, uh, yeah, so we, we had plenty of contact. You know, <laughs> I was lucky enough to, to, to make a number of connections and, and join a number of networks over in the UK, and they remain, you know, I remain passionate about that kind of networking and, and stuff like that. So, You know, I, I really enjoyed the chance to get back to the UK in 2015 for the World Cup. I lived in Richmond, not far from where I lived when I played for Harlequins. So I lived there for six weeks while the World Cup was on and just absolutely loved it. So, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the great things about rugby is the camaraderie, is the the, the network and the strength of the, the connection between players and supporters um, across rugby. There's something special about it. And you are still in touch, I believe, with a member of the royalty, of the family royal, uh, Mike Tindall. Yes, every now and then in touch with, uh, in, in touch <laughs> with Mike Tindall. Um, he normally comes out to Australia for the, um, for, what would you call it, the equestrian season, a little bit of the horse racing season and some of the, some oh, of yes. the polo season. Mm -hmm. um, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm less fond of Mike Tindall than I am of his wife, Zara, who is absolutely fantastic. Um, so yeah, it's it's always nice to catch up. It, it's it's great to, um, I, I guess, deepen the relationships that you established on the field with people, but to see them after your rugby career and to you know of all nationalities to to, to catch up and to because you've been through shared experiences, even though you weren't in the same team. Uh, it's all shared experiences. It's a, it's a shared environment. And, uh, you know, that's been one of the joys for me as well, living in Sydney and um, seeing more of Wallabies players I used to play against and have a little bit of contact with, you know, on the field and, and then after the game, but now get to know them a lot better. So, you know, I, again, it's that camaraderie of rugby that's, uh, you know, that's very strong. It is there for life. And uh, then you took uh, the French uh, French leave, decided to play for Toulon. Yes, I was lucky to get a gig with Toulon. At the end of my Harlequins um, contract, I had had some injuries and they really needed one of their two foreign players to, you know, well, they needed both players to be playing all the time. So, you know, I left with no um, animosity from Harlequins. I remain you know, a, a supporter of Harlequins, of course. Um, but I was lucky to get an opportunity to play in Toulon. And similar to Harlequins, I think it was a it was a club in France which had a lot of history, a lot of passion, a lot of tradition, and was in second division at the time. And so it had a, you know, a really uh, dedicated project to getting back into the top uh, top 14. So... You know, it was again. It was great to be a part of a club that had that history and heritage, um, but but a real ambition. And uh, you know, we had a great season. We were very lucky there. We had an extraordinary team. Once again, it was a United Nations sort of a team. A lot of nationalities. The <laughs> French guys were fantastic and welcoming. 
but we're also very lucky that you know playing in the French second division after the straight after the 2007 World Cup, we picked up three or four players who had just been playing in the Rugby World Cup test matches. You know, Victor Matfield from South Africa, George Gregan from the Wallabies, Anton Oliver from the All Blacks, Esteban Rosada from uh, from Argentina. Um, and so we, we had a really, you know, strong squad and we went through a, a fantastic season. Toulon's a very passionate rugby rugby town, as we all know. Um, and we had a great season and, and we won the second division and, and um, went up into the first division. And it was, you know, I, I loved playing for too long. Again, they were red and black, which harked back to my colours in New Zealand for Canterbury. So they've always been very passionate uh, colour combination for me. So, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a fantastic season. And how was Murad Boujeal? Because, he's, you know, as you know, you know, he's no longer uh, part of the Toulon um, Toulon management team. Now there is a new uh, director called uh, Le Maître, I believe. Um, so, yeah, how, how was it? What kind of Well, I, I, I enjoyed uh, Mourad. He was very, very passionate. He was very motivated. He wasn't from a rugby background, but that's not a bad thing. Um, he was a guy who you can learn a lot of lessons off because he, he, he succeeded against the odds. You know, he was a you know, North African immigrant into France and um, had to battle against people all his life telling him, you can't do this, you can't succeed, and he proved them wrong. Mm -hmm. And it, it made him the person that he is. He's very, very motivated. Um, at times, his passion and enthusiasm in rugby was a little misguided because of his... Well, <laughs> it, it was because of his background, he was always... Uh, negatively motivated, you know, to prove other people wrong. And in a rugby, in a team sport context, that's not always the approach. You know, every player is different. What motivates uh, players and what motivates the collective is, is can always be different. So, look, he gave it absolutely everything. Uh, like I say, I don't always agree with, with his methods. You know, there were some times that I think he came into the changing room and told guys he was going to you know, rip up their contract if they didn't play well. Um, and that was something that would have spoken to him and the way he grew up. But, you know, it's not necessarily the way that every every rugby player motivates. So, but he was absolutely dedicated to the success of Toulon and of Toulon Rugby. He, he took the rugby club and he, you know, supported it to enable it to get back into the first division, which... Toulon um, was very, very, as a people, were very, very passionate about. But I couldn't, I couldn't believe the, the, the fervent support that Toulon people, the Toulonais, uh, the Toulonais had for the rugby team. Like, you know, it wasn't an affluent area. They, they weren't highly paid people that were coming along week in, week out watching the team. And they had a whole bunch of foreign players on really good contracts who came and played for the team. And yet, when we had big all-in brawls on the field and the French Federation um, charged too long a fine of like 10,000 euros or 15,000 euros, despite the fact that they knew all these foreign players were getting lots of money, all these people that, you know, at times couldn't rub two euros together, they had a whip round and they collected money so that they could pay the fine to the French Federation so that Toulon would be able to pay its fine and, and keep playing and keep fighting, ultimately, on the field. So I found that quite extraordinary. 
So much passion at Toulon, I have to say. And I was very lucky to see uh, Saracen play against Toulon in the quarterfinal in 2016. And, you know, it was a, I was uh, at the opportunity to meet yeah. Pilou. So, uh, and the team is so much, it was so great. I absolutely well, love it. It shows so. what's important in sport and particularly in rugby that you can modernize and you can, you know, employ all the best methods of training and nutrition, everything like that. But what's also important is the heart and having a couple of things to rally mm-hmm. around as a, as a focal point for the passion. And, you know, in Toulon, it was the Pilu Pilu, which is the, you know, the chant that they, they call about the warriors coming down from the hills and, you know, attacking the town. And it's very much a, a, a defense of, you know, bare arms, stand shoulder to shoulder. It's that sort of a chant. So there was that which got, you know, shouted out before every game and it evokes the, the colors of Toulon, rouge et noir, the red and black. Um, but also the, the on the shield is the muguet, the, uh, the, the the flower with, uh, with 13... Um, with a plant with 13 flowers, which is on the shield. And it's just something that uh, that the people and the team equally rallied around. And like I say, it, it shows that, you know, in professional sport, there's there's the scientific approach, which is very important to training and, and performance. But there's also the heart, which is a massive part of, of sport in general, let alone professional sport. Yes, and the heart is very significant. So when you play rugby, it's also very much so. And talking about rugby techniques, you know, what were the main differences you spotted when you were playing in in French teams? You know, so we played for Toulon, then you moved for to Racing, then Bézier. Yeah, that's right. I had, th- I had three fantastic experiences with three clubs who had a long history, you know, really rich heritage, and had a project, an ambitious project to to get back to you know, the the division they thought they should be in. So, you know, I was very lucky in that regard. Um, there was so much talent in France. There was so much um, so much ability of the players and at any given moment you knew the team could, could turn it on. What was different about France was, I guess, maybe the temperament which allows teams to maybe reach greater highs than other teams can but also much lower lows. And so there was a lot of inconsistency in performance. When it was on, it was on. It was fantastic. But when it was off, it it was really hard going. And, you know, there seems to be an acceptance in French rugby that French teams do not travel well. It's like they travel like oysters. Um, So, you know, they talk about the esprit de cloche, which is the, you know, the clock tower spirit of the town. And so, you know, teams really overperform playing at home, and then they, you know, underperform playing away from home. So, you know, just that inconsistency of performance. But at the same time, you know, like like most things, your weakness and your strengths are, are sort of, you know, uh, intertwined. And, you know, you couldn't have the highs, the, the, the extraordinary performances of French teams. I don't think you could have those without on the flip side, having the, the poor performances. So, um, you know, it was just interesting. And I think the important lesson for foreigners going over there was was trying to influence the team's performance in a, in a positive way, not trying to change the world, but just trying to be as French as possible and to influence the team in, kind of in a French context. So, 
you know, it, it was easy to get frustrated when you're used to a New Zealand system and come across, but then you remember, well, we're in France, this is how they operate, and we've got to work within that. So I always tried to impress that upon teammates and later when I was coaching on on the guys in the team, the foreigners in the team, to, to respect that we are a French team. Um, that's not to say it's not frustrating at times when things just, especially when you play away from home mm-hmm. and things don't go well. I mean, I remember being in a French team that played away and we had a big prop who walked around the changing room before the game crying and wiping his eyes and screaming out and saying, this is war, this is war, you know. These these people's ancestors <laughs> came and molested our ancestors and everything. And two minutes later <laughs> out on the field Sorry. when this big prop got tipped onto the ground on his head by the smallest guy in the opposition team, I said to myself, where, where was the big tough guy from the changing room? But that's just the way it is. It was all a show. Talking about physique, uh, so I, I, this is the same, same question I asked to, uh, to Hilly as well last week. Did you have any offer to appear on Les Dieux du Stade, <laughs> which is a calendar of basically naked rugby men which is released every year, I believe, for charity. So this year you got uh, Dupont, uh, Pelisson, Michalak for the last time because he's, uh, he's reached the grand age of 37 years old. So, um, yes, I think it's done only in the UK in no, France as well. No, I was, <laughs> I was never, not surprisingly, I was never asked to be in that. Um, I think, fortunately for me, I was playing second or third division by the time I got to France and and. So I don't think I would have, you know, commanded the profile. But also, I mean, you know, Kiwis, I don't think we're the best-looking race in the world. And so probably up against the French Latin Adonises, we're going to fail pretty (laughs) comprehensively. So, um, no, I never got asked for that. I I do remember the calendar, though, and I do remember thinking, well, you know, they've got Les Dieux de Ruby. Maybe eventually they might have one Les Vieux, the old people, Les Vieux de Ruby. So I was kind of I was kind of holding out hope for that one, but uh, it wasn't to be. <laughs> so it's good. I can think about a few a few candidates: Bernard Laporte, Fabien well, we Gatier. We always thought, and I, I think I think Bernard Laporte <laughs> is absolutely fantastic. But you know, unfortunately for him, he bears a, a reasonable likeness to Vladimir Putin. So you could imagine him stripped down to the waist without a shirt and sitting on a horse, couldn't you? So uh, you know, that would be an obvious one. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, what do you think? Talking about French rugby right now and Bernard Laporte and the, the Les Bleus, what do you think the chances, the chances are for France winning the uh, World Cup in twenty twenty three? I think they've got a really strong chance. I think um, you know they had a, a tough what was it, the quarterfinal last year where they were down a player just through a moment of insanity in that quarterfinal. Um, we know that. French players always have the ability to to beat any team on their day. I guess the challenge for France is trying to um, trying to achieve consistency of performance, but at a high level. Um, like I say, if you if you take away the the esprit of the French team and and try to make it too consistent, then maybe you can't achieve those incredible highs that they do get to at times and which New Zealand rugby is all too familiar with. So I think um, the, the balance balance between 
structure on the field and unstructured play, which is the, the French strength. So there's got to be balance there and there's got to be balance just in, in performance. Um, but there's so much talent in French rugby. I think I think the challenge is the, around the coaching in France. From my experience, there's a generation of coaches in France who are very, very prescriptive, um, what we'd call casse-couille, uh, you know, uh, ball breakers. Um, and, uh, and I, think, you said. I think I think the traditional okay. <laughs> model from the 1980s French coaches endures a little bit in France. It certainly did while I was there, where you just have Cascouille who are just telling the players what they have to do. Now, if you want to have a team of players making good decisions on a Saturday over 80 minutes, you need them also getting used to making their own decisions during the week and taking responsibility for that. And I just don't think that currently is the French system. It, it may be at certain clubs. So I think the challenge there is to is is for French rugby coaching to modernise a little bit. You know, for example, some of the methods we used to use in training in France were, were quite archaic. And a lot of times, you know, good French team performances came despite the coaching, not thanks to the coaching. So, you know, I think I think that's the challenge to 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 build on the incredible talent that exists in France, the natural uh, joie de vivre, the natural um, spirit of expression on the French field, player. but to channel it as much as possible without without hindering it, to channel it as much as possible so as to be as consistently high as possible. But uh, certainly when you look at, you know, the French, the structure of the French championships is amazing. The, the history and the pride that goes with all of these French teams is quite incredible. And just the resources that are available, I think, is amazing. You know, you've got 14 professional teams in the top division, 16 in the second division, and then you've got 40 more in the Fédéral 1, which is, you know, just an extraordinary number of, you know, high-quality sports teams and, and talent throughout the land. So, you know, playing at home, I think absolutely France has every chance in 2023. I hope so as well. Finger crossed. And uh, this weekend, as you know, there is um, Heineken, the finals for Heineken Champions Cup and the Challenge Cup, in which two of your former uh, clubs are playing. So we've got uh, Racing Metro, sorry, not Racing Metro, Racing 92 <laughs> playing against Exeter in, um, in Bristol, actually. So do you think that Jackie Lorenzetti will finally be able to wear a jersey I, with one star. Jackie Lorenzetti yes. is the, the, the director, I, is the owner I of Racing. I absolutely hope Racing. so. I really do. I really respect what Exeter has done in the last 10 years in terms of being from a you know smaller base in the UK to and, and really having respected the values of rugby. They just haven't they haven't simply bought a team. You know they they have built something and it's been extraordinary you know since I used to play against Exeter in the second division I think that the way they've um, maintained their success has been absolutely fantastic at the same time I played for Racing I loved my time there they've got a, an amazing history behind that club Jackie Lorenzetti has been absolutely fantastic as an owner um, as a, a, a motivated supporter of the club um, and and 
kind of, you know, having the dignity not to be too outspoken all the time where he probably has every right to be. And I really do hope for Jackie that uh, that, that the team performs for him and that, that he gets that victory. Um, he was very, very nice to me. When I finished at, at Racing, he, um, they needed to, to sign a young a young fly half. They found that in uh, Juan Martin Hernandez. I had no problems with leaving the club at that point. And, and Jackie actually said to me, um, look, we know there are a couple of clubs in first division who want a, a bit of a caretaker fly half to come in. Very happy to talk to the owners on your behalf if you'd like me to. He said also, you know, we're, we're, we like having you here. We'd like to honour you by, you know, if you're finishing up, we'd like to have a testimonial match for you. So I couldn't have asked for anything more from, from Jackie Lorenzetti. I think he's absolutely fantastic. And so, you know, for his sake and, and for the fact that I played for Hussing and I know they're passionate supporters there, I really do hope they win uh, this weekend. Yes, me too, me too. And the other team for the Challenge Cup is Toulon versus Bristol in Aix-en-Provence. So uh, what do you think the chances are for, for Bristol? Because Toulon's, you know, won a few times, you know, the Yeah, I think, the um, Cup, I think so. Bristol has got everything to play for in this game. Again, they have never traditionally been a, a, a really fashionable team, certainly in the last 15 or 20 years in the UK. Um, you know, it's a great city there out by Wales and they've got a, a strong rugby history. But like I say, in the last last 10, 15 years, they just haven't been a fashionable team and they've gone really, really well the way they've built their, their squad. Um, they've got one of Europe's best players and Charlie Piotel playing across there um, and Stephen Luatour as well, of course. So, you know, there's a New Zealand connection there. Uh, of course, my heart stays with Toulon because uh, Rouge et Noir and, you know, having played there. It's, yes. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I take my hat, hat off to the achievement of Bristol, who, you know, along with Exeter, perhaps without the resources of, of other clubs in Europe, they've, they've done so well. But, uh, you know, this, this is a tough one for them to go into, to Aix-en-Provence, to go into enemy territory and play Toulon. Uh, easy for the Toulon supporters to get down the road to, to, to acts and to support their team. So, um, you know, it's going to be a, a tight one. You think the home advantage might might help too long, but uh, you know what? I think I think Bristol, with what they've had to fight against and, and, and how hard they've had to work to get to where they are, you know, it's, it's, it's another small step for them, and I'm sure they're up to the task. Yes. Time, time will tell. But um, finally, because we've been speaking for such a long time, and you told me you were a chatterbox. <laughs> yeah, and me too as well. But what do you miss from France? And uh, can you say something to me in French before we uh, we finish that call, such as I'm going to ask you, uh, qu'est-ce que tu vas faire uh, le reste de cette semaine what are you going to do <laughs> the rest of this week? So if you can reply ouais, bon, moi, in French and in English. J'ai un accent du Sud. J'ai passé une année à Toulon, trois années à Béziers. Donc on me dit que, que j'ai un accent du Midi. Et bon, pour le reste de la semaine, effectivement, j'ai fait trois journées de, de travail dur. Donc euh, en fait, je mérite de, de, de faire quelques journées de, de repos. Donc, euh, je ne vais pas faire grand-chose les, les prochains deux jours. 
bon, je suis à Sydney, il fait beau ici, il y a des plages, donc euh, bon, je vais passer quelques, quelques heures euh, euh, sur la sable. Euh, mais après ça, je vais, je vais commencer à planifier peut-être un peu de temps en France parce que le mondial en France 2023, c'est une occasion pour moi peut-être de, de passer une année avant le tournoi ou après le tournoi. Donc, euh, j'ai hâte de peut-être organiser quelque chose pour, pour me permettre d'y être pendant, pendant une année. Donc, euh, ça va arriver vite. Et, you know, I think it, I can't wait for the, the, the World Cup. The World Cup in Japan last year was absolutely superb. I know France will work very, very hard to better that tournament uh, in 2023. Uh, there's a fantastic bloke who is, is at the heart of the, the, the French tournament called Claude Natia. And uh, I know he's going to absolutely do everything to, to produce a fantastic tournament. And, and I look forward to the chance to to perhaps living in France and Italy for a year before or after the tournament. So, you know, maybe I'll do a little bit of planning the rest of the week. I reckon I've earned it. I've uh, worked pretty hard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Veronique. So, um, you know, you don't want to do too much. You guys in France know what a, that a, short, work, what a short work week is about. So I don't want, to, don't want to shoot too many bullets. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Except I live in the UK, so it's a bit, uh, it's a bit uh, misleading. But uh, oh, it's been lovely to speak with you. You know, what, what a pleasure! What uh, I'm so humble. I feel so humble, you know, to speak with one of the rock star of the uh, Kiwi rugby. So I really hope that one day uh, after the World Cup, you know, you can maybe yeah come to France and and play, not play, but you know, be part of the. Um, The Breton, the Breton Rugby Club, which is going higher and higher, Vannes or maybe Rennes or maybe Rouen, you know, so they, they could do with a little bit Absolutely. of Absolutely. And look, I love my connection through playing in France. I had a very good friend uh, called Etienne de Langle, who is from uh, Bretagne as well. Um, I used to call him Vannes. I'm very excited to see that uh, towns around France in, in areas that aren't considered perhaps strong rugby areas are doing better and better. And I look forward to the chance to, to get across there. I, my great uncle um, is buried in Rennes from, uh, from the war, from the World War II. So I do feel like I have a connection there. and I'm looking forward to getting back and it's been an absolute pleasure talking. So what did you think? Did oh, you it's brilliant. That? Yeah, what a great guy, isn't he? As you say, such, such a is. modest, you know, down-to-earth player. When you think of all he's achieved, you know, fabulous. Yeah. That's, that's probably your best uh, interview yet, I reckon. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but he's definitely a chatterbox. <laughs> I told him well, I any, anybody that can out-chatter you, Veronique, is, you know, <laughs> he's got to be world-class, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So tell me more about uh, the top 14, my friend. Right. Last weekend is a bit of a, a, bit of a mismatch. Um, mishmash, I should say. Montpellier, another defeat, third defeat out of three. They lost at Toulon, 25-21. Um, Carbonell, the, the brilliant young fly half, obviously sent a message to Fabien Galtier for not being included in the, in the France international squad. He kicked 20 points. Ooh. Yeah, and a try, each, yeah, a try each from Cordan in the 13th minute for Toulon and Cobus Reinach for... Montpellier in the 47th minute, but, you know, 
Montpellier really under pressure now, and I'm sure you've seen in the French press, Philippe Saint Andre is already, you know, being is being considered uh, being kicked out, etc. You know the way things are in France, so um, I think they're going to have to start turning it around soon, or else it could be could be somebody new there. We'll see. We'll see. You know, it's they they, they really need to ramp up. That's yeah. for sure. Next game is the one they have to win. It's now. It's now. Never. Yeah. Well, they've yeah, got. It's job might be his life. And Xavier Xavier Gerboza, I forgot his, uh, his surname, but the the coach, our coach, uh, you know, is a. Uh, yes, he probably needs to uh, to deliver as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're playing Agen actually on Saturday um, in Montpellier. So if they lose that one, I mean, that that's that's going to be going to be pretty mm-hmm. poor because Agen down in twelfth. Um, they lost at home to. Um, Stade Francais at the weekend, 20 points to three. Just a single penalty for Agen. Tries from Wasea and Johan Maestri for um, Stade. Uh, the -hmm. other guys who have been hitting the top 14 running, Bayonne, they finally lost a game after beating Clermont and Stade Francais. They were brought down to earth at home to La Rochelle where they lost 36-19. Um, four tries for La Rochelle, Domiru, Bottier, Laid, and Aldrit, and 16 points from the boot of former starred Francais fly half and French fly half Jules Plisson. Uh, Luke oh. got Bayon's only try, and Germain kicked four penalties and a conversion, but uh, a convincing win for La Rochelle, which, which takes them up now to third in the table. So, um, yeah, looks like they're hitting some form. Yes, but we have to bear in mind uh, regarding this chart that the uh, some teams still have yeah, some catch-up yeah. to do in terms of games to sure. be played. So we, we, there are some of them not quite there. Regarding Argent, um, oh, they got a little bit of bad luck because one of the best players, Gabriel Ibitoye, got injured just before the game. Yeah. So uh, he, he couldn't play. And you could see him, he made yeah. a massive impact. He wasn't there. He wasn't there on hand. And his, his absence, you know, was uh, was definitely felt. Yeah. But um, yes, it is quite quite tough right now. Um, a game that I watched was the Racing that I watched, that I listened to on Radio Top 14 <laughs> in French, as you do. Uh, was Racing versus Stade Toulouse. This time, it didn't take place in um, in uh, in um, 92 in the massive stadium, but it took place in the Jean Bouin Stadium, and um, it was very much a tight game. You know, they were uh, Racing retired i would say i wouldn't say retired but the racine didn't put on the on the pitch you know the the games the players that they are going to use yeah yeah for, uh, for the final i guess week. yeah so it was very much you know very young yeah. team, but they, they, they did quite well you know uh comparing if you look at the um the team that played for Stade Toulouse, in which you had the you know the usual suspect you know dupont yeah. tamac yeah. ramos and so on so close game actually wasn't it 24 24- to thirty to to lose. I mean, only six points in it in the end. Did that? Did that reflect yes. the way the game was being played? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. But um, one one player I have to say that I was really impressed was uh, Celefatio Tulufua. Okay. 
was very, very strong. We did a 21, um, uh, 21 placage. So, yeah, strong. And there was strong defense from Racing, but somehow, you know, um, Stad Toulouse managed to get through the, the defense. And uh, yeah, and got to, got away with the with the team with the win, you know. And there was still you know twenty eight minutes to play, and Racing was leading twenty seven to twenty four. But uh, Toulouse, you know, found yeah. the, the the way to it. So and what about that game in Po uh, Po against Leon? That was an incredible result, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. So it was the way. Back in Le Hameau, in uh, Section Paloise, was uh, it was a home home game. Um, it scored two tries. Um, Lyon scored three tries, and um, again, you know, it was it started really really well for um, for Lyon. You know, within four minutes within the game, you know, they were leading ten nil. But then Antoine Astor woke up, <laughs> and by uh, Half time, you know, the, the score was 12 16. But towards the end, you know, it was it was a hard work for Section Paloise. They really had to use their uh, their uh, the true grit in order to to equalize, you know, the, the score, which was actually equalized on the 83rd wow. minute. So never ever lose. <laughs> um, Never lose faith that you will not score a point in the last in the dying game. So was, was that a penalty of the, of the game? Yeah. It was, yeah, 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 absolutely. So it was 29, um, 29. Yeah, Wow, show. yeah, you wouldn't have seen that one coming, would you? No, 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 no. So uh, the the so, sorry, no, it was a try. Oh, okay. Um, it, they did show some some very strong tenacity. Yeah. So. Um, Great, great well, that's work. Po, you know, so, po, so as you rightly say, there are some anomalies because teams haven't played, but Poe in yes. second place in the table. I mean, that's, you know, when you think they've always been one of these teams that have struggled in the bottom half, it must be lovely for their, for the club and for their fans just to see them at, at the top end of the table. I mean, this is fabulous. Yes, yes. So we talked about we got a busy weekend with the European Champions Cup. What about uh, uh, this weekend? Yeah. In the top 14. What do we well, have? Well, you know what's really strange? Um, in the top 14 this weekend, Racing were due to face Toulon. They were scheduled to play each other, and they're both in European finals. So how how weird is that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, I'll run through run through the fixtures. As I say, I think um, you know most. Uh, UK fans will certainly be focusing on the on the European finals, but Clermont in seventh place. They're facing Stade Francais, who are in ninth place. Po are at home to Bordeaux, and Po in second place at the moment. Bordeaux in twelfth. Lyon, who are in tenth place, entertain Bayonne, who are in eighth place. Breve are at home to the league leaders, Toulouse. Montpellier, as, as we briefly uh, discussed earlier, face Agen. So that's make or break for Montpellier, certainly. I reckon if they lose that one, I think there'll be a, certainly some changes in the coaching staff. And finally, La Rochelle in third place at home to Castra in 11th. So, um, yeah, another... Another fascinating weekend, of course. And, you know, 
as is always the way, these games are subject to COVID. Um, I don't know if we mentioned last weekend, Bordeaux and Claremont was called off and Castor and Breve. So at the moment, all the games are on as far as we know, but as everybody knows, that can change very quickly these days. It does, it does, yeah, because they have, I think, two two tests a week, you know, so... um... The one is going to take place, I think, today. So we'll find out on Friday yeah. whether they are. They, they, some of the team can meet each other or not. So uh, uh, French news, what's happening? Oh gosh, it's like—is it like a, a tea? Uh, no, a storm in a teacup, or is a storm in a in a? It's like it's more like in extenders, a isn't it? <laughs> so what's happening oh. between the La Fédération Française and the French Premier League? So NLR versus. FFR. Yeah, it's a bit like, I don't know if anybody watches um, Spiral or Engrenage, I think it's called in France, isn't it? The the series with the, the police and the, and the lawyers. But uh, it's reflecting in French rugby at the moment because the LNR who run the club rugby in France um, are arguing with the French Federation about the amount of international fixtures played in this autumn period, particularly focusing on the France-Wales game on the 24th, which was thrown in uh, against the agreement that was already made between the two parties. So it went to court and basically the the court said, you know, go away and sort it out yourselves. They didn't make a decision on it. So as we stand at the moment, nothing has been finalised. There's still talk that um, top 14 players won't play for France. And they may play for France, so it's a question of watch this space. But, you know, we've only got a week to go, so they're going to have to sort something out soon. And hot of the press, you know, I'm just uh, reading at Midi Olympic latest information, an article written by Leo Faure. It says that uh, this morning uh, they they met with each other, you know, so the representatives, the delegates yeah. of the LNR and FFR, and it was a very constructive uh, dialogue. Okay. So it's let's yeah, keep, yeah. let's uh, keep our finger crossed because it's a question of you know between for FFR obviously it's a, it means you know they need they need the uh, that's, they're looking from a financial aspect if you know sure. what I mean you know uh, because they need to uh, to fill up the 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 the, 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 the bank account. And from the LNR is more, you know, um, the the player, the the welfare of of the players. You know, they don't want to uh, to damage the health of the their best players. You sure. know, for and of course, there's a full program of top fourteen matches that weekend as well. So, um, you know, the, that I think if it was a free weekend, then then there wouldn't be so much of a problem. But um, there's a full program on the twenty fourth and the thirty first. So. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see yeah. what happens. So it looks like they might come up with a with a yeah. compromise. So watch this Absolutely. space. Let's wait and see. Yes. And uh, so I think it's time for us to talk about our okay. Okay. Let's go. So last last week we talked about uh, Antoine Dupont. Oui, Demi de Melee. This week, <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, you oui. remember? That's good. Uh, uh, so this week, uh, I'm going to ask you um, about a fly half. How do you say a fly half? 
Fly half. Now let me think. I know that uh, I know is Demi Demele is the scrum half. So I think it's yes. uh, Demi de Overture. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Hey. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> I won't say anything. How you, tell me how you pronounce it properly, though, because I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it. Un demi d'ouverture. Okay. That's right. You know, yeah. pronounce the R. My, my sounded more like so. Del Boy in that. <laughs> Never mind. I've got a, a one which is really easy, but you he- you keep hearing that when you listen to French uh, uh, rugby on the radio or on TV. Line out. You know what a line out no, is? No, I don't. Une touche. Oh, that's good. Yeah, la touche. Okay. Yeah, I know Scrum is so melee, I... which you know is easy to remember, isn't it? La touche. I've never heard that. La touche, okay. a line out. Yes. And I've okay. got a joke for you, and you've got yeah. one for me. So I'm a lady. Well, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, jury's, the jury's out on that one, but I'll give you the best of the <laughs> yeah. I'm a exactly, French yeah. lady, we can't argue whatever with that, that we means. We can't argue with that. <laughs> with lots of French yeah. rugby connections and European connection and world connection. So what's the difference between Scotland's rugby team and the tea bag? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. I do apologize to my Scottish <laughs> oh, your ex-Scottish friends. Go on, what's the punchline? The tea bag stays oh. in the cup longer. <laughs> Ouch. Now, I'm going to tell you one. Now, this is... I'm, I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, but in back in the 1950s, Wales were playing France in Cardiff, okay, in, in the Five Nations. And people who know the Millennium Stadium, Cardiff Farms Park, as it was, right behind is Cardiff Station. And these were the days of the steam trains. So the match was in progress and a steam train pulled out of Cardiff Station and blew its whistle. And the Welsh team thought it was the end of the game. So they went off the pitch. The French players didn't hear it, carried on playing. And 25 minutes later, they scored. That's bad. That's very bad. <laughs> Why did they stop for an aperitif or flirting yeah. with women? Or... <laughs> oh, dear me. Oh, this is getting worse, my friends. I think we'll have to come up with... On that note, you know, I hope you enjoyed our French rugby connections. Don't forget, you can listen to us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And even so, you can ask Alexa. You can ask Alexa, play French Rugby Connection with Véronique Landieu and, and Mike Pierce. And here we come. <laughs> we do, actually. If you are an Amazon, an Amazon wow, Prime member, I have to say. Stuff, but, uh, yeah, that's yeah well, I hope, hope everyone has a so, great weekend and enjoys their rugby. And more importantly, stay, stay safe and keep your friends and family safe. And join us again next week if you can. And don't forget to subscribe Absolutely. to our podcast yeah, as well. Or else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Au revoir. Au revoir.